0: Hey there, it's Keith. Just a word of warning before we get into the podcast. This podcast isn't suitable for children as it discusses many adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Neighbor to Neighbor, a podcast focused on highlighting extraordinary individuals and organizations making an impact in our community. Neighbor to Neighbor is produced by WeQ. A not-for-profit cooperative credit union based in Bellingham, Washington. Hi there. My name is Keith Mater, and on the show today, we interview Aaron Newcomb, the executive director for Engedi Refuge, an amazing nonprofit located in Linden that serves women transitioning out of human trafficking. Well, Aaron, thank you for taking the time to join me today. Absolutely, glad to be here. So, why don't we just start off at the top? What is Ngedi Refuge? Okay,
1: great. Ngedi Refuge is a residential therapeutic program for survivors of human trafficking and specifically sex trafficking. So, we help ladies that have been prostituted or classically sex trafficked, and we provide safe housing, therapeutic counseling, and
0: education and case management for them. Great. Yeah, that's. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, so why don't we just dive right into the programs? What, what do your programs look like?
1: So we actually have a program that's divided up into three components. Um, and the first one we call phase one. It's actually six months long. So that's a long-term commitment for someone that's coming out of a risky situation or a vulnerable situation. Uh, and it focuses on physical safety and emotional stability. What we find is their experiences are very um, traumatizing. Uh, somebody coming out of a sex traffic situation has not been in control or had agency of their own body, their own time, their own money, their own identity um, uh, for a significant amount of time. That has multiple ramifications, all very negative for someone's um, psychological and social well-being. So we try to address all of those needs and to, find, to provide for them a, an experience that is stabilizing and healthy and peaceful. Uh, preparing them for further education, vocational training, and all the while really nurturing them emotionally through a healing process. So anyway, phase one focuses on that. Phase two is anywhere from about four to eight months long. It's individualized in terms of their community reintegration, finding employment, um, developing skills of money management, time management, relationship management, and if needed, sobriety management. And we mentor them through that process. So that's a fluid and individual phase. Phase three is really developing them spiritually, someone that has some uh, spiritual component to their life, a walk of faith. We help them kind of Um, integrate that into their life and also help them give back to the community, give back to the people that um, are coming from a situation where they came from. Um, It's a really important part of kind of finding personal healing is to help somebody else. So phase three uh, is also very individualized and it kind of helps them, mentors them through that process.
0: Yeah. Awesome. There's a, there's a lot there to again, unpack. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess maybe I want to kind of step back for a moment just to understand situation so Mm -hmm. obviously we're we're dealing with um folks that have been human trafficked prostituted Mm -hmm. and um i guess just looking at the the that locally and in our country like Mm -hmm. talk about that issue like Mm -hmm. and and how prevalent is it and Mm -hmm. and kind of like maybe how how does that happen
1: yeah that's a great question and a super big question and what i have learned over the years that we have been involved in this is something that I was completely unaware of before. I was aware of prostitution, but only as sort of a criminal element. What we've learned is that how people get into that situation or even into something more classically defined as sex trafficking is a very dark story. And so kind of a composite of many people's experience, um, and we know this from people that we've served personally, is that as a child, something gets broken in their family connection. Um, they find that there is um, total neglect, criminal neglect, um, <clears throat> abandonment emotionally, physically, socially at some level. And so children that experience that um, are looking to meet their own needs. And the way that that often happens is as they become, they get into early teenage years and they start looking, you know, classically, it's, it, it's a female who's looking for male attention Um, probably over 90% of the women that we have served and statistically this is true across this this demographic is that they they grow up in a fatherless home the father is either not there or he's abusive and they're looking for a replacement father figure and so a 14 year old girl will be looking for attention from uh, an older male somebody in their late 20s or early 30s Um, and that person, oddly enough and, and disturbingly, um, that there's a lot of those guys out there who would be very willing to sort of, um, uh, initiate a relationship with a very young girl. Um, something that is classically and, 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 uh, you know, for, for a 35-year-old guy to be in an intimate relationship with a 14-year-old girl is statutory rape. I mean, legally, that's just wrong. But there are so many guys willing to do that, uh, and that's very disturbing. These girls fall prey to those guys who would, who would be open to an intimate relationship with them and then would turn and exploit them. Uh, and there's often a, a wooing period of, hey, I'll meet your needs. You can come and stay at my house because, hey, they've had a bad experience at home or they've been kind of tossed around in the foster care system. And hey, I'm looking for somebody to take care of me. He will sexualize that relationship almost immediately. And at some point, be it after a few days, a few weeks or a few months, he will turn and commodify her. So then he'll say, hey, uh, I've been spoiling you and you're staying at my place and you're costing me money. You're kind of, you kind of owe me something. So I'm gonna invite some guys over and all I want you to do is kind of give him some sexual favors. They're usually resistant to that at first. And if they don't capitulate, he will use um, verbal threats and physical force. Um, but she doesn't feel like she can escape him because he he's in control of the entire situation. She's 14. He's 35 or something like that, right? Um, so she, out of fear and self the survival she will eventually um, capitulate and once she's turned that corner then he is prostituting her and he is controlling her images on the internet by, with which he gets people's interest he will control the guys the individuals the amount of guys the rhythms of that set the price and she turns whatever money she can make in that transaction she surrenders to him that is a classic sex trafficking situation and if he were to be caught by law enforcement um, given the age disparity and the, the the situation that he is forcing her into um, and it could be psychological force not necessarily physical force but physical force is is, is very very common um, he would be charged with felonies and go away for 20 years so he keeps her Terrified of him and hidden. It's hard to find these kids. But statistically, we've looked at, as a nation, we've looked at the United States and just what's going on in that realm in the United States. And there's somewhere between 100,000 to 300,000 minors in that scenario, or possibly in that scenario. Uh, on any given day in the United States. Wow. And those are very fluid numbers. It's hard to track it because nobody is signing up to answer that report. You know, no, nobody is answering that question. So we have to kind of take from what we do know from people that have been caught and kind of surmise the, the statistics and the real numbers. Um, what that does is it interrupts their whole emotional development, their family connection, their educational development, and their vocational preparedness so they go into adulthood when they turn 18 nothing magical happens but suddenly it's not a felony anymore because they're not a minor they're like willingly prostituting as a lot of people see it it's not it's not psychologically true but it's sort of legally true and and then the impression from the american society is well she's 18 she's an adult she does she chooses whatever she wants i don't see any chains on her on her arms so she must be doing it of her own free will the fact is she's been conditioned to do this compromised and forced into this position um, and now it's her level of survival she doesn't have an education she doesn't have anybody looking after her and her family um, so she's now doing it willfully and being sometimes moved from one trafficker to another sometimes they stay loyal to a trafficker for many many years Um, It all has a a fluid concept, but they're in this world of sort of organized or semi-organized prostitution, but they've been conditioned from classic sex trafficking. They usually don't realize that this pimp or trafficker, they won't necessarily use those words, boyfriend, doesn't really love them until later. And they realize that they're not the hot commodity they were at 14 and 15 to be sold. Because you can get high price, like $400 an hour to sell her at that age. And when they're 18, 19, 20, 21, now well, maybe that price goes down to 200 or even lower. And they realize that they're being devalued, that they're only seen as a commodity. Their pimp slash boyfriend doesn't really love them. Um, and their world starts to crash. They start to have these horrifying realizations that their life has been used and abused and exploited classically and that they don't have any options on the, on the horizon and they feel very suicidal. That's very, very, very common. Um, they're also terrified of their options. They don't see any options of help out there. Society seems to judge them as, you know, oddly, like a whore, you know, somebody that's a less than and is very non-compassionate in general to their situation. And so they consider suicide or they realize if they stay in it, they're they're very vulnerable. At this point, they're addicted to substances at some level. Um, they're certainly addicted to the, um, the unhealthy relationship dynamics of serving and, and submitting to this kind of a thing. Willfully or, or unwillfully. Um, and they're at risk. They're always at risk of violence. I mean, the mortality rate, you know, due to murder is, is like exponentially higher than the average population, someone their age. So um, they realize their life's over. We're, our, our, that's kind of the, the general scenario. And so when they come to or contact in Getty Refuge, they're at that place of desperation. Like, I don't think I can do this forever. I'm either going to get killed or kill myself. And I've lost my opportunity for education, healthy family and emotional development. Society seems to hate me. Our whole goal is to provide a refuge for them to find safety and security and counsel, pick up the pieces of their life and help them move forward into a life that is not as
0: abusive and, vulner- and vulnerable as it has been.
1: That's our whole goal.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's super helpful to, you know, get the idea of just the mind space um, mm-hmm. that the people that you serve are in. Um, and obviously uh, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. uh, to, to your point and kind of in your story there, I mean, it's it's years of conditioning and, and kind of... Um, just developing a certain headspace and and self-identity and so therefore um, probably the idea of helping someone kind of move beyond that into something that's more healthy is quite a process which again Mm -hmm. plays into your your three-step process Mm -hmm. so speaking specifically about whatcom county um This is happening here.
1: Mm -hmm. It
0: is. My goodness.
1: It is. You know, the the smaller communities of the United States don't have the resources, the manpower or the money to really study and track these things. It starts usually with law enforcement. Some of the larger communities in our country and in our state have been able to do that. So Seattle invested in researching what was really happening back in 2014 through 16. Um, There were some... um, university-level studies that were, that were done. All of this was augmented by the, the real accounts going through the district attorney's office. And he's done a number of presentations over the years um, detailing that. You know Who were the customers? Who were the, the victims? What is the volume? And so what they found was virtually 4% of the male population, um, as a statistic, was seeking to purchase someone for sex every single day, just in King County. So we don't have the study done in Whatcom County or in Bellingham, but what we do know statistically, when you look at the law enforcement's engagement with this kind of a thing or the advertisements that have been made online or in other media, um, that statistically it's about the same. So you take 4% of the male population could be trying to purchase sex. So in Whatcom County, we have roughly about 2,000, Men a day that are seeking to purchase someone for sex, exploiting somewhere between you know 150 to 200 um, individuals a day in Whatcom County. Um, there's a lot of factors and um, evidences that you can you can look at that would kind of verify that figure. That's really kind of frightening um, that it's happening this much. If you don't know what to look for. You probably won't see anything because you don't really know what to look for, or you you're not really around when it's happening. I've actually done some individual research at night, and there are certain hot spots within the Bellingham area and Ferndale area where this is happening, and you can see the evidence of it. But the fact is that most of people, most of us, don't know what to look for. If we were looking for it, and most of us aren't out roaming the streets at midnight. But if you are, and you go to certain hotels or certain areas. And you can see this where you know men are 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 accessing a an individual hotel room every 30 to 45 minutes there's a new guy going to this room i watched it it's so unnerving and it's like oh my god it's happening right here you talk to law enforcement they go yeah for sure they know it's going on but very few of us are actually paying attention at the time or in the places where it is happening on a daily basis the, the thing is is that the internet has changed the entire game you don't have to have a brothel to prostitute people it does happen in brothels and it happens in illicit massage parkers, um and in various other places but you can traffic someone on the internet uh, and simply set up a date and they can meet someone at a hotel at an apartment at a home in a car in a park anywhere where it's semi-private for a 30 to 60 minute encounter that you can exchange money for. And the whole thing is set up online. And no one would know differently, like, what are those two people doing in the car? I don't know. None of my business. I don't don't know what's going on. I never think of that. Or this person is visiting someone at a house at 11 o'clock at night. Well, so what? It's none of my business. I wouldn't know. Most of us wouldn't know. And it's very easy to do. And what the... District Attorney's Office in Seattle has informed us is that because law enforcement is more organized or has been more organized in King County and they've been able to create a bit of a barrier or um, a threat to someone who is human trafficking someone, sexually trafficking someone in King County, that the the traffickers are wise enough to, to move out of the big area where there's bigger money, more law enforcement resources. And they're purposely going to smaller communities where they don't have the resources. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the money. They don't have the tools. They're not organized enough to look for that. Most law enforcement, especially in a small community, is, is, is trying to respond to uh, violence or robbery or drug dealing. Prostitution is like, well, you can't control it. We don't have the manpower to look at it. Traffickers are exploiting that scenario. And so it's actually significantly dangerous in rural communities. The sheriff's office here in Whatcom County has told me a few years back that there's 32 active gangs. 32 active gangs in Whatcom County. And the gangs have figured out that there's more money in prostituting women than there is in selling drugs. And they need the money.
0: So... You know, a, I think a lot of these things that you're sharing are just like, you know, for someone like me who's who's been around here for a while, you're just like, wow. I mean, it's it's just not a world that maybe a lot of people are aware of, just depending on kind of maybe the circles that you um, exist in locally. So that's, uh, that's surprising. It's kind of
1: a dark topic, and I never used to even think about it before 2007 when my eyes were kind of opened up to what was going on. But it's become my passion to create a solution. Here's the problem. A lot of people say, okay, so it's a problem. Okay, so what? So if if these women want help, why couldn't they go to a domestic violence shelter, a homeless shelter, or some other place to get help? You know, like we have, we have social services out there. They could, they could run away if they wanted to. They could get help if they wanted to. What we found is even more even more disturbing, in some ways even more disturbing than the actual problem itself and why the problem exists, is the callousness to our in our society to those who suffer from it. So what we found was that even in a homeless shelter or in incarceration in a jail or at a domestic violence shelter, those that are seeking help or are subject to those institutions actually look down on a woman or a man or a person who has been sexually trafficked as less than. There's a pecking order or a value order even within the populations that are seeking help for a variety of reasons. And there's this shunning or this this judgment against someone who's been compromised as a sexual commodity. And so that even in those systems or in those institutions, these ladies, predominantly women, are looked down upon. They're demeaned. They are insulted. They are rejected. And we find it absolutely necessary in order for them to heal from the emotional traumas that they've suffered and the physical traumas. They need a place that it's an even playing field. They need a context where there is love and acceptance without a pecking order of acceptance. You know, everybody's on the same playing field uh, or on the same level. And so. Creating in Refuge as a safe haven and a place of restoration exclusively for women who have been sex trafficked or prostituted it means everybody's um, the same. And our staff and, and volunteers are trained in exercising compassion in a very appropriate way where there's no shaming or blaming. And we demand that from the ladies that come for help either. You don't pick on each other. You know, there's a there's a training and a mentoring for them as to how to do social order. They're used to something that's very abusive and domineering, um, and they're always kind of trying to get the one up on each other. Mm. And here we're like, no, the requirement is is that you don't assault anyone verbally or physically. Um, you uh, you don't shame and blame others. We're all here from the same situation, seeking the same kind of help to find some some rest some safety, some healing, some therapy, some education, and some mentoring into a different way of doing life. And that is actually what is needed. These ladies are not really going to heal if they don't have all those components. One of the biggest components that they need is time. Um, There's a lot of people that have said, hey, yeah, sure, we should give them a leg up. We should give them, you know, kind of specialized attention and uh, a place to stay. But they've limited it to a three or four week stay. Um, you can't even find out what their problems are in three or four weeks. You may not even find out their real name in three or four weeks. You have got to create a space time that they can relax into, into that safety and begin to disclose who they are and what they really need or to find some touch point within themselves where they understand what they really need. They may not really understand because nobody is asking them, how do you feel? For the years that they've experienced this, you know, the, it's an emotionally abusive and traumatizing experience to be used and commodified and abused physically and sexually and verbally for a long period of time. And no one cares how you're feeling about yourself. And we're all about giving you the space and time, you know, giving those individuals the space and time to ask those questions, to investigate their own worth and to be poured into with lots of love and
0: encouragement. You know, uh, you know as mentioned before and to your point about time, I mean you're going from years and years of kind of developing uh, self-view and and also like it, as you mentioned sort of like a power sort of understanding of yourself. And so, yeah, I mean that would make total sense for, you know, the importance of time in in kind of um, moving out, out of that and realizing maybe who you are and what maybe life looks like going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess talk about some of the transformations that you've seen Mm -hmm. in just some of the work that you've done. Yeah. What is really
1: special about this work is getting a front row seat on transformation. And we've seen ladies come in that were completely debilitated, um, socially, emotionally, even locked down mentally um, and begin over a period of time to flourish, um, from some ladies have come in, um, unable to really speak or share or disclose anything about themselves and move into a place where they are talkative and they're, they're, they're vulnerable. Um, they're taking risks with people, even leading other people. Like we've had, you know, we have had a lady come through our program and she was completely shut down at first. Um, she went through the entire three phases of the Getty's program, um, went out and got a, a job on the outside for a period of time and then came back. And, and we actually hired her on staff for, for a while. And she did a brilliant job of, of not only leading like other survivors in a classroom scenario, but actually publicly speaking, like sharing her story with sometimes hundreds of people with confidence like that was just a, an incredible transformation um, going from a place of complete sh- shutdown in fear and insecurity to total confidence. Wow. We've seen others that have come through and they have had such shame around themselves and there's their sense of unworthiness and, and to move confidently knowing that they're a person of value, that they're loved and to move into relationships post and get program that Uh, are are confident and healthy intimate relationships business relationships family relationships with a new sense of boundaries
0: and personal worth Um, we've seen that over and over and over wow that's amazing um i mean i think uh it's just it's just eye-opening to see the intentionality and just uh the, the the way that you guys design your programs i mean it all makes a ton of sense. Um, I guess the last question would be, what are your hopes for your program going forward? Mm, that's a great question. Um, we hope that one, we can continue
1: to do what we're doing. Well, we can continue to do that. Well, <laughs> we feel like we've developed something that's really working and we are always working on doing that even better. Um, so we study. um, best practices. We're in relationship with other agencies all around the country and we can glean from what others have learned. We're constantly training our staff, We're constantly training our volunteer pool. Um, we are uh, constantly taking a, a read on our on the ladies that we serve and we do exit interviews with them. So we glean from them, hey, what was good about this experience, what was not so good about that experience? How could we improve? What would you say to other survivors you know we're trying to really glean so that we are sharp and on the ball all the time we we don't want to grow into something that is so big that it's impersonal we are we have the capacity right now between three different residential facilities to house 12 women um, we have a learning center of course that we're in right now which is um, it's not huge but it's adequate to serve about 12 women at a time, and we have enough staff to serve them well. Uh, that works well in that, in terms of the ratio of residents to staff and the fact that there's, there's not 100 people here, there's 12 people.
0: <laughs> and,
1: and so that everyone is, is, is personal. They feel like a person with an identity, not a number. We're not just kind of moving people through an impersonal program. It's all very personalized. And they stay here for a period of time to where they become part of our lives and we become part of their lives, at least for this season. And that in and of itself is really important. So our our goal is to continue to do this well, to be, um, to be well-staffed, well-funded, and operating at the top of our game. What we want to do in terms of growth is not to make and get a refuge, like I say, some apartment complex or institution that has a hundred people in it, but that we could train other agencies that also have this model or want to follow this model in being a personalized, long-term therapeutic residential program because it's successful. Our success rate has actually been about 90% the entire eight and a half years that we've been open, which means that here's our benchmark, is that nine out of 10 women that come to Engeti Refuge for help do not willingly go back into prostitution or sex trafficking. So whatever is happening here is severing the emotional, um, mental, the relational ties with that whole thing that, that caused such damage and trauma and abuse in the past. And they are willfully going forward, uh, removing themselves from that situation. That's success for us, that they remove themselves from the vulnerabilities of trafficking and from the actual trafficking experience themselves that that you know we want to get them out of the game we don't want to just feed them and house them for a period of time and then they go right back to it we want them to have the self-worth the confidence uh and the security to move themselves out of that scenario going forward and we've seen nine out of ten that actually experience that that's actually higher
0: than any other agency that's doing this in the country wow wow Well, that's amazing. Aaron, uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, it was just a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to Neighbor to Neighbor, a community-driven conversation highlighting individuals and organizations making an impact in our community. Neighbor to Neighbor is produced by WeQ. Unless specifically stated otherwise, WeQ does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement.